Thanks, David. So if you have your Bibles or your app, go ahead and turn to Isaiah, the book of Isaiah. Isaiah. Yep. Isaiah the prophet. Yeah. Cool guy. I love being a part of a church that has a lot of Bible nerds in it, people that like to uh, look at the scriptures and see what they can dig out of it. We're going to be going through the book of Isaiah together for a couple months, okay? It's, it's, we're not going to make it, a, it could be like a three-year project. We're not going to do that, but we're also not going to try to do an overview of Isaiah in two weeks. Um, actually, we're going to look at Isaiah from now through the Christmas season because Isaiah actually has a lot to say about the Messiah. And so we're going to actually take our Christmas series from the book of Isaiah, which I don't think I've ever done that before. And I've been preaching for like 30 years. So I'm really excited about that because it'll be something different and, and a challenge for David and I to do that. Um, so we're going to actually dive into Isaiah chapter one um, this morning, and we're going to actually uh, read Isaiah chapter one together. So I want to give you just a second to get there. Um, also, I should mention that there are clipboards with activities for the kids and there's some crayons back there. So I know we don't have any children's programs right now because it's just not a, there's not enough space for everybody and all that kind of stuff. So if you have young ones and you want to help keep them occupied, you're welcome to grab a clipboard and a crayon or two. Um, just have them make sure they don't draw on the seats just on the paper and we're good. Um, and don't let them eat the crayons because that's, well, you know, you know what that does to them. So, so let's look at the book of Isaiah. Chapter one. I'll be reading from the, the Christian Standard Bible. Um, I had a question come up at the membership class yesterday about versions of the Bible. Um, use one. That's my advice. Uh, matter of fact, use many. Um, we really encourage you to use a lot of different uh, translations of the Bible. There are some that we would tell you to totally run away from like the gender neutral and, uh, and certain Bibles like that. But uh, as far as the major translations out there, uh, read, read with many of them. When I prepare, when I'm studying and preparing to share God's word, I usually have at least four different versions of the Bible that I'm referencing at all times because there's sometimes you just catch a little bit of a nuance in a word or in a phrase that you don't catch um, in other versions. So I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Follow along in whatever you have. And we're actually going to read through the whole chapter. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of King Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah of Judah. Listen, heavens, and pay attention, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have raised children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. Now the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's feeding trough, but Israel does not know my people do not understand. Oh, sinful generation, people weighed down with iniquity, brood of evildoers, depraved children. They have abandoned the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned their backs on him. Why do you want more beatings? Why do you keep on rebelling? The whole head is hurt. The whole heart is sick. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, no spot is uninjured. There's wounds and welts and festering sores, not cleansed, bandaged, or soothed with oil. Your land, it's desolate. And your cities, burned down. Foreigners devour your fields right in front of you. A desolation like a place demolished by foreigners. Daughter Zion is abandoned, like a shelter in a vineyard, like a shack in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of armies had not left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would resemble Gomorrah. So now hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom, and listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are all your sacrifices to me, asked the Lord. Oh, I've had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed cattle. I have no desire for the blood of bulls, lambs, or male goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires this from you? This trampling of my courts. Stop bringing useless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths and calling of solemn assemblies. I cannot stand the iniquity with a festival. I hate your new moons and prescribed festivals. They become a burden to me. 
and I'm tired of putting up with them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I'll refuse to look at you. Even if you offer countless prayers, I will not listen because your hands are covered with blood. So wash yourselves, cleanse yourselves, remove your evil deeds from my sight and stop doing evil. Learn to do what is good. Pursue justice, correct the oppressor, defend the rights of the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. Come, now let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be as white as snow. And though they are crimson red, they will be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Oh, the faithful town. What an adulteress she's become. She was once full of justice. Righteousness once dwelt in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross to be discarded. Your beer is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, friends of thieves. They all love bribes and chase after bribes. They do not defend the rights of the fatherless and the widow's case never comes before them. Therefore, the Lord God of armies, the mighty one of Israel declares, uh, I will get even with my foes. I will take revenge against my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will burn away your dross completely. I will remove all of your impurities. And I will restore your judges to what they were at first and your advisors to what they were at the start. And afterward, you will be called the righteous city and a faithful town. Zion will be redeemed by justice, by those who repent, by righteousness. At the same time, both rebels and sinners will be broken. And those who abandon the Lord will perish. Indeed, they will be ashamed of the sacred trees you desired. You will be embarrassed because of the garden shrines you have chosen. For you will become like an oak whose leaves are withered, like a garden without water. The strong one will become tender and his work a spark. Both will burn together with no one to extinguish the flames. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and this time that we can spend in it. Reveal your character, your heart, and just you to us through it. We pray today. Amen. Isaiah is an amazing book. Um, it really is. And chapter one is just loaded. I, I really don't even know how to get through chapter one completely. So I'm just going to try to do the best that I can. Um, Isaiah's ministry began before the northern kingdom was taken into exile. I think, David, on the next slide, do we have that timeline? Um, I think I have a timeline up here still. Or did it lock up on you? Um, his, his ministry began before the northern kingdom was conquered by Assyria and before the first exile. So we talked about Jeremiah, and he started in the middle of the exile or during the exile. Isaiah started before Assyria came in. So you're talking after Jonah. Here we go. Um, you can see Isaiah um, 739, uh, 694. Um, and, but that's when it was when he's written. His ministry actually started uh, a little bit earlier than that. He's believed to have started about 30 years or so, possibly before the first exile, um, and then went through that exile. So he He's one of the people that saw everything get ushered in. Um, he was a prophet that quotes the most about the uh, Messiah and the hope of Israel. So there's two books in the Old Testament that are just filled with references to the Messiah. One of them is the book of Psalms, which is uh, a book of poetry and of music. The other one is Isaiah, uh, the prophet, and he's the prophet who speaks about the Messiah the most. He's also one of the most quoted prophets uh, in, in the New Testament. And his message was delivered to the southern kingdom. So there was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom were 10 tribes, remember that? And they were um, called Israel and, the southern, and referred to as Israel, um, though Israel can also refer to the whole nation. And then there was a southern kingdom, Judah, which were two tribes. And so he was speaking to the, the southern tribes of Judah. And uh, if we were to try to summarize the whole book, so you can get an understanding of the big picture of the book. My study Bible actually did a really good job of it. So I'm just going to read you what they wrote because they did it really well. Isaiah's message is relatively simple. First, 
Isaiah accused God's people of sin, rebelling against the one who made them and redeemed them. Second, Isaiah instructed these sinners to reform their ways and act obediently. Third, Isaiah announced judgment on the people because of their sin. And finally, God revealed his future restoration of the people, or at least the faithful remnant that survived the judgment. So that's the, the overview of the whole book. But it's actually an outline of chapter one as well. Chapter one serves as like a table of contents for the entire book of Isaiah. It's really, really cool. Uh, for instance, the first thing that, that it says that, that Isaiah does is he, he brings up this accusation of sin or rebelling. Chapter one, verses one through 15, do that. The instruction of change or repentance is verses 16 through 19. The judgment because of sin is verse 20, and then again in verses 28 and 31. And the future hope and restoration is verses 21 through 27. So the outline of the whole book is also the outline of chapter one. Chapter one is like a table of contents and gives you a glimpse of all that Isaiah is going to cover. It's really kind of cool. I mean, I wish I could write like that. You know, you can just kind of take all your thoughts and put them up front. And isn't that the way that we're taught to write, actually? When you write a paper, you write your whole paper, and then you come back to the beginning and you give that summary, right? And you say, this is, what's, this is what I'm going to cover. This is my thesis. This is my case. And I'm going to defend that in the writings that follow. Isaiah is doing the exact same thing, and he actually does it by way of a courtroom. He brings it into a legal perspective. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to a courtroom. And have you ever had the experience of being in a courtroom? I don't want to know why necessarily. Okay, just but it's it's kind of scary, isn't it? It's intimidating. It's very intimidating. Um, I've had the privilege of being in a courtroom for just about everything, um, and I remember uh, I remember being the person who was being asked questions about things that I've done and being acquitted of those. But that's really like, am I going to get in trouble? Uh, I remember being called for jury duty to try to help pronounce judgment against somebody else. And uh, that was not a lot of fun either. Matter of fact, the, one of the times when I got called in is to be selected, one of the witnesses was somebody that I knew as a relative. And so they actually um, were sitting in this room with like 50 people for selection. And they said, is there a Michael Biolsi here? The whole room just starts looking around and I'm like, Beep. so they had me walk to the front and they asked me if I could be impartial. And I told them I probably couldn't because I know the person. And so they let me go. But walking up in front of all those people, to go up to the judge, wow, I was like, my heart was just like going 100 miles an hour, like, oh my goodness. And I've also been on the other side of that where I've had to take somebody else to court for, them fail, uh, for their failure to uphold their end of an agreement. And then to take my case to the judge and to say, this is the evidence and this is what's happened. And I believe this person is in the wrong and there needs to be, it needs to be made right. That last case scenario is really what Isaiah is doing and presenting, showing God as that person who's bringing his case really before himself. It's kind of interesting because God is both the prosecutor and the judge. And so God is bringing this case before himself to declare the judgment that's going to happen to make right the situation. Um, it's a courtroom scene. And we start right out in, in verses two through four. Um, Let the heavens... Uh, listen, heavens, and pay attention, earth, for Yahweh has spoken. And he says, I've raised children and brought them up, and they've rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's feeding trough, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. O sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, brood of vipers, depraved children. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned their backs on him. So we start out in verse two, it's a really interesting statement where Yahweh says, listen, O heavens, and pay attention, O earth. Now, there's a lot of discussion as to what that means, the heavens and the earth there. Is he just referring to all of creation? Sure. Is he possibly with the heavens referring to the, the divine council? Like, what's the divine council? Have you read Job, the book of Job, chapter one? There's this divine council that takes place in heaven with heavenly beings. And it's almost like God is calling into assembly all of the heavenly beings, as well as all of the earthly beings and saying, listen, I have something to say and all of you are going to hear it. I've got a problem with my people. Wow. And nobody's going to miss it. Everybody's going to hear it. Okay. There's no hiding it. Nobody can say, I didn't know. Everybody's going to hear it. And so he, and he then gives this case, and he does it in a couple of ways. The first one is what I call the awkward illustrations, okay? 
So any of you ever work with cattle? Cattle are just such intelligent creatures, aren't they? <laughs> Why do you laugh? Right? No, cattle are frustrating and stubborn, and you have to sometimes, like, make them do things they don't want to with force. They're not always the, the most bright creatures. And so here Isaiah starts out, he says, listen, the ox, the ox knows its owner. Matter of fact, it'll recognize its owner. And it's a pretty dense animal. And the donkey, the donkey at least knows where it gets its food. It might not care about its owner, but it knows where to go for food. It's like totally driven by its stomach. If you've had a donkey, you know that that's true. They just want food all the time, right? So the ox knows its owner and the donkey knows where it gets fed. And Israel is dumber than both of them. It's literally what he's saying. Israel has no understanding whatsoever. They don't get it. They don't understand who made them. They don't understand who owns them. They don't understand who feeds them and provides for them. The ox and the donkey, they're smarter and more intuitive than my own children, God says. Now, parents, this is not good parenting advice. Don't say this to your kids. They may have times where they act stubborn like you do, but don't compare them to oxes and donkeys. Just going to say that. God does this to his creation, to his children in this case, and it's kind of awkward and very potent in the way that he does it. So when he gets past the illustration, he then gives them some titles which are not flattering either. You're a sinful nation. You're a people weighed down with sin. You're a brood of evildoers. A brood. It's a great word, isn't it? We should use brood more often. You're a brood. Matter of fact, Jesus, when he confronted the religious leaders, he called them a brood of what? Brood of vipers. So you get this idea of snakes and serpents. See this brood. Brood of evildoers, depraved children. Now, wait a minute. These are his children. He calls them depraved. These titles are pointers to how far the nation had gone from what God had established in the first place. They went from being a holy nation to a sinful nation, a people set apart for God's work to people set apart for evil deeds. They went from being the children of the most high God to depraved children. And so we get this rift from where they were on Mount, from the, the beginning at Mount Sinai when they came out of Egypt to where they are now. It's so far apart. And then he finally brings his accusation. He's okay, I'm done calling. I've, I've compared you to animals. I've called out who you are in character. And now I'm going to tell you what you've done. You've abandoned Yahweh. You've despised the Holy One of Israel. And you've turned your back on Yahweh. Now, this entire section of Isaiah is poetry. And we talked, I don't know, about a couple months ago about literature in the scriptures. Uh, when we were looking at Jonah, actually, it was a little over a month ago. And we talked about how it, one of the Hebrew um, poetry um, meters, one of the things that they do to help get their point across is repetition. So in using several animals that are obtuse and comparing Israel to them, in using a series of titles that all talk about the same type of character, in using this right here that say you've abandoned and you've turned your back, they really mean almost literally the same thing. But to repeat it over and over again is, a, is something that Hebrew poetry will do to try to reemphasize a point. You were with God, but you turned your back. On God, And this is an important statement because God is about to say that he's going to punish them and he's going to send them away, but they first turned their back on God. And that's significant. That's really significant. They left Yahweh. It was they who first left. And I think that that's important. We see this in Adam and Eve, don't we, in the garden? They first turned their back on God. They hid from God. And then God pushed them away from his presence. Uh, we see this over and over again with the nation Israel. And so the question is, why is God sending them away? And I think we have to acknowledge that a holy God cannot allow impure people to remain in his presence. A holy God cannot allow impure people to remain in his presence. So he has to push them away. There's this phrase in verse four, the Holy One of Israel. And if you catch that, highlight that, because that's going to happen over 20 times in the book of Isaiah. As a matter of fact, it happens more in the book of Isaiah than the rest of the scriptures combined. It's one of those terms that Isaiah kind of coins, the Holy One of Israel. 
And in the event of a court case like this, to say that God is holy is to say that he's without blame. So he's standing up and making these accusations, and there's no fault in him. He's not to blame for any of this. He is without blemish. He is without fault. And holiness is really a characteristic of God. I mean, God is holy. If you've ever studied the character of God, you will find over and over, God is holy. What's unique is not that God is holy. What I think is unique is that God has an expectation that his people will also be holy. So I'm just going to take a poll. How many of you consider yourself holy? David does. It's because he's an elder, right? None of you considers yourself holy? Oh, this is going to be fun. God expects his people to be holy. Leviticus chapter 11, verses 44 to 45. Leviticus 11. For I am the Lord, your God. So you must consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. Do not defile yourselves by any swarming creature that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. So you must be holy because I am holy. So twice in that one passage, God says that his people are to be holy, but you all said you don't feel like you can be holy. So has God set us up for failure or maybe do we misunderstand what it means to be holy? Chew on that. Because I think it's B. Leviticus 19.2. Speak to the entire Israelite community and tell them, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. He reiterated it a third time in the book of Leviticus. You can go to Leviticus chapter 20. He'll give it to you again, verses 7 and 8. Consecrate yourselves and be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sets you apart. So what does holy mean? What does it mean to be holy? Set apart. So I think a great illustration. um, I did. We actually did this once. Uh, How many of you like cookies? So we had a rule in our house. You couldn't have cookies until after dinner. And if you ate all your dinner, you could have a cookie, right? I mean, you have rules like that. You can have dessert after dinner, right? That dessert is holy. It's set apart for a specific purpose or a specific time. It's set apart, literally set apart from. That's what holiness means, to be set apart. We do it all the time. We set things apart. How many of you have, uh, you might take money and set it aside for a specific thing. You've made it holy. You've set it apart. We've turned holiness into this idea of 100% purity without any spot or wrinkle or anything like that. And that's not exactly the term what of holiness is not exactly what holiness means. When God says that he is holy, it means that he is set apart from the rest of creation, that he is set apart from the sinfulness of mankind, that he is set apart from all other gods, that he alone is the creator and sustainer of all things. He is holy. And when he says that his people are to be holy, he's telling us that we are to be set apart from the world, set apart from the sin in our life, set apart from the desires inside of us to be set apart for the work of God. That's literally what it means to be holy, to live your life for God, set apart for his work, to reflect him to the world around you. It doesn't mean you'll do it perfect. Matter of fact, perfection is not the standard that's given here. So understanding that definition of holiness, how many of you believe that it's possible for you to be holy? You better raise your hands or you can't leave today. I mean, come on. We're called to be holy and God wants to make us holy. And you're going to see throughout this chapter that God's goal in all of this that he's going to do with Israel is to restore them back to the position of being holy set apart for him. The book of Leviticus is a set of laws for how to live. And most of them are things you shouldn't do, but at least four times there's this command to be or to do, to be holy, um, to strive for holiness. 
Why? Because the people of Israel were called to represent God to the nations. So they need to be like the God they represent. Makes sense, right? Because they have a relationship with a holy God and a holy God cannot allow people who are unholy to remain with him. And God wants a relationship with us. So we have to be holy. You and I are called, you and I are called, not just the Jews, to a relationship with the holy God of Israel. And we're called, just like Israel was, to represent him to the nations. So we, just like the Jews, are called to be holy, to be set apart, to be like God like the one who called us out of darkness and into his glorious light. So that you don't think that this holiness idea is just an Old Testament thing. If you want to turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter kind of gets it. 1 Peter 1.14, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance, but as the one who has called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. I think Peter might be quoting Leviticus. I could be wrong, but I think he might be quoting Leviticus. And he's telling believers in the New Testament era, in the post-Messiah era, that the requirement to be holy is still there because we're representing God to the nations. Our conduct is to be holy. It's to be like God's. So the question is, what does it look like to live out this holiness in practical ways? I mean, really. And I think that Isaiah gives us a little taste of that in this chapter one with his accusations. So in this court case, he says, listen, you are not like the holy God. You've turned your back on the holy God. And then he starts to bring the evidence. Let me tell you what you've been doing that's wrong. And I believe that in verses 21 through 26, um, especially in, uh, in, in, verse, in the first three verses, he kind of lays out the evidence. And this is called a chiasmus or a chiasm. Anybody know what that is? Any of you teachers? They actually, can, they actually will teach often to use this as a teaching method. What's that? It's an X, right, right. The Greek word chi, the Greek letter chi, excuse me, is the X. And so you have chiasma, right? So you have the letters of an X, and so you have a word and a word, and then this word relates to another word here, and it kind of reverses the order. Let me, I'll give you an example and see if it makes sense to you. Um, ask not what your country can do for you, but what? But what you can do for your country. So you started with country in the first half and went from country to you. And in the second half, you went from you to country. And so if you put that in a, in a ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country, they kind of crisscross here. You start with one idea and you end with that idea. And as you work toward the middle, things connect. So you make a case from A to B and then from B to A or A to B to C and then C to B to A. It's chiasmus. It's a, it's a literary tool that's really powerful. We do it, use it a lot in our society. Um, it was used by the Jews as well. And in verses 21 through 24, 26, we have the same thing. We have a chiasmus here. So verse 21 is an A, and it lines up with verse 26. 22 with verse 25, 23 with verse 24. Show you how that works. In verse 21, it's an unfaithful city. It calls in the city, the faithful city is unfaithful now. And the city that was once righteous is no longer righteous. And in verse 26, what does he say? I'm going to make the city faithful again and I'm going to restore it back to be called a righteous city. So you started with the faithfulness and the righteousness, and then you end with that. And then as you go in, the next verse, verse 22, talks about them having impurities in their life, and he refers to what? Silver and dross, right? Do you have a different word in your version? Anybody know what dross is? impurities and when you're melting down a and when you're melting down a fine metal like silver the impurities will rise to the top and you actually heat it up to cook out the impurities so you only have what's pure left and so 
He says that they're full of impurity. They're, they're full of this dross in verse 22. And then in verse 25, he said he's going to remove the dross from them. Are, are you seeing it now? It's, it's a literary tool that they would use to make a point and to make some emphasis here. Um, so let the first half of it is the accusations. And the second half is what God is going to do about it. So verses 21 through 23, how the faithful city has become a whore. She has, she who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless and the widow's cause does not come to them. The evidence against Israel that God is bringing, which is showing how they are not holy, is that they've taken bribes. They've ignored the needs of the underserved in their society, widows and orphans, and they've rebelled against God. Interestingly, these are the same charges that Jesus would levy against the religious leaders during his earthly ministry. It's also the same charges that we covered when we covered the book of Malachi. These verses point out the shortcomings of the Jews, but not only do they point out the shortcoming of the Jews, they also really highlight the compassion of God. In the book of the law, there are so many laws that protect the orphan and the widow, the sojourner, the stranger who's living among you. The entire book of Ruth is a pointer to the compassion of God. Ruth gleaning in the fields to collect grain was only permitted because of the law of God and his compassion on people who weren't in the land and caring for the poor. It's a pointer to the value that God places on the widow and how he blesses those like Boaz who make it a priority to take care of those who can't take care of themselves. In the New Testament, there are commands that continue this idea of taking care of, of people groups. Um, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, there's a whole series of commands on how the church is to take care of widows, especially widows indeed, widows that have no families that can take care of themselves, uh, that they can take care of their own family members. The first big problem in the church of Acts was that there were some widows that were neglected in the daily serving of food in Acts chapter six. And that became a crisis in the church. And they appointed people to serve these widows that the church was taking care of. Uh, James, the brother of Jesus, James, the guy who thought Jesus was nuts and then later on realized he was the Messiah and then wrote a book, um, says this, James 1.27, pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. In one verse, James really refutes all three verses in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. The heart of God has always been for the underserved. The heart of God has always been for those that cannot take care of themselves. He has always desired for his people to look out for those that cannot take care of themselves. And we see this in his very character in that he sent his son to die for our sins because we could not take care of ourselves. It's part of God's nature. And he wants us to reflect that. We still have a lot of people in this category. We still have widows. We still have orphans. We could probably expand this in today's culture to include foster children. The unborn child that has nobody to fight for them. It might include the poor, the immigrant, slaves. You say, wait a minute, we don't have slavery. Are you aware of how much human trafficking there is right now? And the victims of that? The mentally challenged that can't take care of themselves. I'm sure we can make this list go on and on. But God expects his people in all nations, in every generation, to take up the cause 
of those that are less fortunate than themselves. And those who are unable to take care of themselves because we are called to represent him. And that is what he does for us. So God says, listen, you have forgotten who I am and have lived in a way that is not the way that I live. And so the verdict has to come. The verdict is that all rebels deserve punishment, right? Isaiah 120. But you, if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Now, I love the imagery of 19 and 20. So again, remember, I'm, I'm really nerding out over literary things. I realize that, but I think it's really cool. So when you look at verses 19 and 20, those that obey will eat richly from the land. Those who rebel will be devoured by the sword. Just like this, this food mouth imagery. And then it says, because the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. It's like there's all this, oh, just really cool, geeky stuff that he's tying all together. In verse 28 of chapter one, he also says, at the same time, both rebels and sinners will be broken and those who abandon the Lord will perish. Now we know that from the book of Jonah that God is a merciful God, right? That's why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. I know that you're a merciful God, full of compassion, slow to anger. So by the time we reach this point, it's, it's very obvious that this is a just sentence, that if God is a merciful God and he's going to punish and destroy and wipe out the rebels, we know it's a just cause. It's not just a flippant act of anger. It's not just a, a punishment for a one-time offense. Generation after generation after generation has turned its back on God and it's gotten worse and worse and worse. This is going to be brought out. This obstinance is going to be brought out more in the book of Isaiah. I got to cover it a little bit in the book of Jeremiah. David gave me the gloom and doom part of it, and then he got all the fun stuff. Um, so I, here I am bringing it out again in Isaiah. It's going to keep happening in the Old Testament. That's part of the message of the prophets. Um, we studied it in the book of Malachi. So rather than focus on the verdict, if you're looking at a legal document, you're often looking for a couple things. One of the things you're looking for are the loopholes, right? How many know what I'm talking about? You don't know what are the loopholes. If I want to get out of a contract, I want to know if there's options. And if I want to make sure somebody else can't, I want to make sure there's no loopholes. So in this legal brief that's taking place, I want to focus on the loopholes that God seems to put in this contract, in this verdict, that kind of seem odd to me. Because he is a holy God and he is a just God and these people do deserve punishment. It seems like a cut in a dry case should be done and they're wiped out. But there are some loopholes. First of all, there will be a restoration. Though God had the right to wipe them all out, he also had an obligation to keep some promises he made. To whom did he make promises that he would be failing at if he wiped out the Jews completely? Can you think of any characters? Abraham? Moses? Noah? No, no, he said he wouldn't flood them. David? David? So you have all these promises that God said, I will bless all the nations of the world through you. That was the Abrahamic covenant. If you wipe them all out, you can't keep that promise. So here you have this declaration of God that he's going to destroy the rebels. But he also made a promise in a previous declaration that he will not go back on. It's interesting that that idea of not being able to go back on a declaration is a very kingly concept. And you'll read about that as you read about the way that kings interact with their people. Read the book of Esther is a great example of that. Once a declaration is made, the king will not go back on that. God will not go back on his promise. He cannot. It's part of his nature as well. So there is this little clause. There's kind of like a loophole in this whole verdict. I will punish you, but I have to keep part of a remnant because I have to keep my promise to Abraham and to Moses and to David. So in chapter one, verse nine, it says, if the Lord of armies had not left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom and we would resemble Gomorrah. In other words, it'd be totally wiped out. And in verses 24 through 26, the second half of that chiasm, God says, listen, I'm going to, some of you, I'm going to refine you and take you back to the way it used to be. Therefore, the Lord of armies, the mighty one of Israel declares, ah, 
I will get even with my foes. I will take revenge against my enemies. I will turn my hand against you and will burn away your dross completely. Remove all of your impurities. I will restore your judges to what they were at first and your advisors to what they were at the start. And afterwards, you will be called the righteous city, the faithful town. The second half of this chiasm shows not just the punishment they deserve, but the thing that God is going to offer them as well, which is, again, his mercy. Not to wipe them out completely, but through this season of punishment, to refine them and to restore them back to where they were in the beginning, a holy nation, a nation of priests, a righteous people. And it's not going to be immediate. It's going to take place in a season referred to as the day of the Lord. Maybe you're familiar with the concept of the day of the Lord. All right. Well, David's going to unpack that for you, Lord willing, next week. So that's like his challenge next week is to unpack the concept of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord actually has many different um, facets to it. Uh, So this will make a little bit more sense. So this refining process will not be in their lifetime completely. God continues to refine people during their lifetime, but the ultimate completion of this refining process will be at a later date. God will eliminate his foes. And in this case, those foes, some of them are his own children. He's going to wipe out his own children. They are his foes, um, some of them, but also the nations. And you're going to see that in the book of Isaiah, that God is going to punish the nations as well. Um, But the goal of this punishment is to purify the people, to make them holy once again. And the goal of God's chastisement on his children is always that. I mean, think about it. I don't know about you, but I have two boys. And as much as I wish they grew up perfect like me, um, they had their mother's sin nature in them as well. And so (laughs) you guys know I'm joking, right? So yeah, they were, if they were good, it was because of her. And if they were bad, it was because of me. And so there were times where I had to discipline and punish my children. It was never just to be mean. It was never just to prove that I was bigger than they were. What's the goal of disciplining your children? To help them go straight. If they've turned away, it's to steer them back, right? If they haven't understood a concept and it hasn't become a part of their, of their character, it's to help that become a part of their character. It's to get the impurities out and to help them be living the way that, that would honor God. As godly parents, that's what we should be striving for. We discipline with our kids. And let me say this. If you're a godly parent, you will discipline your kids. You have to. It's my wife calling me. I'm sorry, honey. So... Um, Let me show you how this is part of God's character. (laughs) She's watching on YouTube. I'm I'm looking for lunch spots this afternoon. So if you're (laughs) Hebrews chapter 12, (laughs) Hebrews chapter 12, verses five through 10. You have forgotten and have you, I'm sorry. And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, Do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when you're reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he punishes every son he receives. By the way, that's a quote from Proverbs chapter three, verses 11 and 12. So you can go Old Testament or New Testament with this one. Um, Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, which we all receive, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had human fathers discipline us and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them, but he, that is God, does it for our benefit so that we can share in his holiness. Oh, there's that word again. We're disciplined so that we can share in his holiness. God will purify his people. Restore justice and fellowship. Once that sin is is smelted away. And again, 
we're introduced to this concept of God's mercy, that he doesn't wipe them out, but he's doing this to restore them back to their state of being set apart for God, holy for God. So we see this mercy of God. And this is what I really want us to focus the rest of our time on as we wrap up this section. I mean, there's a lot of other stuff I want to cover. I want to cover, I really want to cover how the Jewish leaders are called Sodom and Gomorrah. That's loaded. Um, have some time studying that out. And, and the fact that God actually calls the Jewish leaders Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, I really want to geek out on the four different titles that God is given in the book of Isaiah. And just in chapter one, there's four different titles that Isaiah gives Yahweh. And they're awesome, but I'm not going to geek out on that this morning either. I think our time is better spent focusing on the mercy of God. And that's where I want us to land uh, today. So surely the people deserve punishment, but the holy and righteous judge gives the people a loophole, a way out. In verses 16 through 19, chapter one, wash yourselves, cleanse yourselves, remove your evil deeds from my sight. Interesting phrase. We'll come back to that one. Stop doing evil, learn to do what is good, pursue justice, correct the oppressor, defend the rights of the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come, let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow, and though they are crimson red, they will be like wool. If you're willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. We call this repentance. It's to change the way that you live, to change the direction that you're going, to walk the other way. It's to do the opposite, to remove the evil and do what is good. And I want you to understand, it doesn't matter how big the list of offenses is. It doesn't matter how horrible the sin is. The process is the same and the offer is the same. Repent and turn, and that list is wiped away. No matter what sin you struggle with, no matter what sin I struggle with, God has called us, just like Israel, to repent. And true repentance means to stop rebelling against God and to obey him. And notice that he gives the counterpart of the accusations. He says, you did do this, now do this. You were doing this or not doing this, and now you need to be doing this. That repentance is not just an I'm sorry, it's a change in the way that we live. And one of my favorite passages on this comes from the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. So there's a, there's a little... Um, we want to call it a little puzzle, word puzzle, parable type thing. When is a thief not a thief? Is it when he stops stealing? When is a thief not a thief? When he, when he returns everything he took, when he starts giving instead of taking. Ephesians 4, verse 28 let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he is to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. A thief stops being a thief when they become a giver instead of a taker. It's repentance. That's what repentance is. And so God is calling the nation Israel to repent from what they were doing, taking bribes, neglecting the, the, the poor, the, the widows, the orphans, and saying, now you need to pay attention to them and take up their cause. And now you need to stop taking bribes and actually be honest and people of integrity. You need to stop turning away from me and turn to me, stop rebelling from me and obey me. And so this idea of repentance is to turn around and become the opposite way. Um, the word repent is used in verse one, uh, in chapter one, verse 27 of Isaiah. And it literally means to turn back, in this case, back to God, from abandoning God to following God, um, from despising him to honoring him, from taking advantage of the widow to taking up their cause. Can I just say that this is the model for dealing with any sin in our own lives? Now, I asked you before, how many of you can, can say that you, you know, you're, you're holy or you can be at times? How many of you would call yourselves a sinner and know that you can sin at times? We have no problem raising our hand for that one, right? So, yeah, it's like, okay, yeah, I'm a sinner. I know it. I am too. I'm called to be holy. And I'm going to live in that tension my whole life. And when I fail to be holy and I step over into the bounds of sin, the question is, what do I do with that sin? And this call in Isaiah is, is a model for us today. 
It's to repent. It's to stop doing what is evil, he says. Stop doing what is evil and learn to do what is good. And remove evil from the sight of God. Now, that phrase I want to kind of pause on just for a second here. It doesn't matter what our sins are and whether they're addictive sins or not. When we rebel against God, sin is sin. And I think one of the things we don't realize is that as God's people, he's placed his spirit inside of us. And when we sin, we're dragging a holy God into that situation with us. And we're waving that sin in front of God's eyes. When God confronted the nation of Israel, he said, remove this sin from my eyes. He's everywhere we are. And I think if we understood the concept of nothing is done in secret and God sees it all, and when we choose to act in a way that dishonors our brother and sister, that dishonors the Lord, we are dragging the eyes of God with us into that situation. And a holy God cannot remain in the presence or cannot allow people who are sinful to remain in his presence. He says, get it away from me. I think if we comprehended the fact that God is with us at all times, there's certain things we wouldn't look at on our smartphones and our computer screens. There's certain movies we probably would never put on the TV. There might even be certain music we would choose not to listen to. There's certain words we wouldn't say and certain ways we wouldn't act if we truly believed that God was with us and in us. God says, listen, remove that from my sight. Take it away. So the next time you struggle, and I struggle with sin, ask yourself, am I bringing this before God's eyes? And should I be? And recognize that it's about your holiness, not just behavior modification, but your relationship with God and what you're bringing him into. All right, move on to this next thing. What a motivator, what a picture. So verse 18, settling the debt. Have you ever remember a song, come let us reason? Come let us reason together, that's what God says. Come let us reason together, says the Lord. Maybe you grew up with that song. It was a nice, soft, spoken, you know, come let us reason together. And it's just pretty. It's a court case. God is mad. And he's saying, let's settle this now. I mean, it's like, it's like meet me in the alley. I mean, this is not a soft, spoken, let's not, it's just not it at all. I kind of struggle with that song a little bit. But the plea is there on God's part. Let's settle this right now. Let's take care of this so we can move on with it. I've brought it up so we can deal with it. Let's not keep dealing with it over and over and over again. He says, repent and it will go well and rebel and it will go poorly. But if you obey and return, the judge promises to expunge their records, not to seal them so he could bring them up again later. And isn't that what we think God does sometimes? Isn't that true? You ever think about your past and think God could never do anything with me because of my past? When God wipes the slate clean, he doesn't bring it back up. We do. He doesn't. He wipes it clean, clean. He says, listen, if you're willing to repent, if you're willing to trust me and to turn back to me, I'll wipe it clean. It's kind of hoping it would snow because it'd be so poetic to say, though your sins are as scarlet, they'll be as white as snow and have the snow falling outside. And so if it snows later on, you can thank me. I've been praying for that. This idea of being, and, and, and really only, I think, in upstate New York, do you understand the beauty of that? I, I've, ex- I've experienced snow in the city and it's just mud and dirt. But when you get out here and you can see acres and acres of just the sun glistening off of the untouched snow, oh, it's so beautiful. God says, listen, you were stained. I'm going to make you glimmer. I'm going to make you white and pure. Though your sins were as scarlet, they'll be white as snow. Though red as crimson, they'll be as wool. They'll be made pure again, clean again. The Bible says in Psalm 103, 12, that as far as the east is from the west, so far has he moved, removed our transgressions from us. Now, remember, they believed in a flat earth at the time, so the east and west never connected. We think of a globe, and we're like, well, eventually it catches up. No, that wasn't their thinking, okay? This is flat earth at the time, so you have east and you have west, and they never touch. They're that far apart. Uh, Hebrews chapter 8, verses 10 through 12, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws 
into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. Each person will not teach his fellow citizen and each his brother or sister saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them, for I will forgive their wrongdoings and I will never again remember their sins. That's actually a quote from Jeremiah 31. And I think David even brought up a quote similar to that in his message. God says, listen, I don't want your offerings. I want your hearts. I don't want your empty sacrifices. I want people who will follow me and trust me. Hebrews 10 goes on to say, the Holy Spirit testifies to us about this. For after he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws on their heart and write them on their minds and I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. Now, where is forgiveness of these? There is no longer an offense for sin. The author of Hebrews, just like the author of Leviticus, thought certain things were so important that he was going to repeat them over and over again. And one of them is the fact that our sins are totally expunged for those who are willing to trust God and turn back to him. Though the book of Isaiah is a court case that shows that a just God has the right to punish every one of us. It is also a court case that shows how God has built in loopholes, so to speak, to give us a way out from the punishment we deserve because of his compassion and mercy, that if we would just turn to him, we would be forgiven. And just as God reasoned with Israel, he wants to argue with you and me today to trust him and to obey him so that our sins can be washed away. So as we close, I want to ask you a couple questions. Do you believe that God can forgive your sins, all of them completely and never bring them up? Do you really believe that? Are you living in a way that a holy God can occupy the same space as you and not be ashamed? Say I have a heart, I have an easier time accepting the first one. I think I wrestle with the second question more. I believe if all of us were honest, we would say, you know, there are times in my life where I think God would be proud to be in the same space as me. And there are times in my life where I'm not so sure he would be. No sin is too big for God to forgive. No rebellion is so great that God cannot redeem it. No impurity is so tainted that God cannot make it pure again. It does not matter how big our list of offenses, God can wipe them all out. God is a holy God and must punish sin, and he must reprimand the unjust. But God is also a merciful God who provides a pardon from our sentence if we repent. God has made his case. He made his case with Israel and he makes his case with every nation and every generation after that. The question is, will you accept his plea? Will you accept his bargain? Or will we stand in defiance of his mercy and his compassion? Let's pray. Father, in this story in this message that you gave through Isaiah to your people, Lord, we're, we can't help but see our own lives just smattered across it. Now that we know that we are rebellious, we know that we are stubborn. We know that we often uh, could be accused of seeking our own interests and not taking care of those that you set as a priority, the underserved. We know we can be very selfish. We know that we can be so consumed with our own agendas that we turn our back on you and that we abandon you. Father, we know our own nature. We know what we deserve, but we are so grateful for your mercy and compassion. And yes, we, we need it and we selfishly cling to it. We are so grateful for it. And I pray today that you would remind us of what you've called us to, and that's to be holy the way you are holy. 
that you would teach us in our lives how we can be set apart like you are, that we can reflect you well to our family and to our friends, to those closest to us, as well as to our coworkers and our community. Father, teach us how to be holy. Help us to live our days, more of them and more of them, in a way where you would be honored to be with us. Reveal in us the things that are abhorrent in your sight. Remind us of the things that we need to remove from your sight. And teach us how to be like you, we pray. Amen. Well, that's a lot to cover in one chapter.